Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Meet the Bloggers, The Onion Radio News, NPR, Ring of Fire, and Slate.com. Uh, Van, I want to talk to you about the, this idea of green jobs and the green-collar economy. First right. of all, I assume you're not talking about the vegetables. No, no. <laughs> okay, all right. So uh, tell the good folks at home, what is the green-collar economy? Sure. Well, you know, a, a green-collar job is essentially a blue-collar job that has been upgraded to better respect the environment. So you think about somebody who's installing solar panels or manufacturing wind turbines. You know, everything that is good for the environment, everything that's good in the fight against global warming is a job. Uh, you know, uh, solar panels don't put themselves up. Buildings don't weatherize themselves. Trees don't even plant themselves anymore. You got to, you know, that's a job. So uh, we think about it used to be, oh, you know, jobs versus the environment. Now what we're saying is that the jo- we can power our way through the recession by repowering America with clean energy and putting millions of people to work doing that. Uh, I remember the good old days when trees used to plant themselves. <laughs> exactly. but they're that, so lazy these exactly days. These days, you know, these welfare-taking trees—they're exactly. looking to get planted. Put down that weed and get out there and sprout. Yeah. Here's a couple of bootstraps for you trees. <laughs> All right. No, seriously, uh, this seems almost so obvious that uh, at this point, yeah. you know, it wasn't obvious when you were arguing for it back in 2002. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the so the next question is. Who would be looking to prevent this? I mean, do we think this is definitely going to happen under Obama, or are there still forces working against it? Well, the good news is President-elect wants to put $150 billion, $150 billion total, $15 billion a year, into clean energy, energy conservation. That's great. A lot of jobs there. He's aiming for initially 5 million green jobs by the end of his term. So that's a, that's a big commitment, and it has not you know, been shaken up very much. He's talking about $2.5 million in the first two years. Uh, so that's good. Uh, the things that are standing in the way are the politics of, of you know, can't do. Uh, people are saying, well, we don't have any money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my, from my point of view, we can't afford not to, uh, re- and to invest in repowering America, retrofitting America, making ourselves the leader in solutions, not pollution. Uh, the, the climate risks are too terrible. But also, we got to produce something in, in America. Uh, one thing we can't produce is clean energy. Uh, we have a Saudi Arabia of wind in this country in our plain states. We have a Saudi Arabia of solar power in our sun belts. Uh, why don't we put Detroit to work making the wind turbines and the solar panels that will let us connect those clean energy power centers to our population centers rather than making SUVs to destroy the world? Let's make some wind turbines and solar panels to help save the world. Why, why haven't the entrepreneurs already stepped in? Well, why hasn't this happened without government's help? Sure. Well, you know, there's probably a Google or a Yahoo or a Microsoft for Energy rattling around in somebody's head or garage right now. But the government is on the side of the problem makers in the U.S. economy when it comes to energy, not the problem solvers. Uh, the, the, the big oil, uh, big coal get massive subsidies. They're protected. They get triple subsidies. Big oil, not only do we give them direct you know, breaks and, and support, we also, they're the only industry in the world. They're, because their supply lines go all around the world, we don't home grow our energy. We've got to have our Pentagon spending trillions of dollars protecting their supply routes, and they get to pollute for free. So you know, that's a triple subsidy. Uh, you can't pollute for free. If you go out here and litter, you're going to get a fine. Just you know, The next time that happens to you, just say, no, my name is Chevron. You know, My name is <laughs> Peabody Coal. They get to pollute megatons of carbon for free. So what we're saying is let's strip those subsidies away from the problem makers, and let's start supporting our problem solvers in Silicon Valley, at, you know, at MIT. We've got people who have incredible out-of-the-box ideas, but there's no market and they're going uphill. Let's change that. So, but what, what does government need to do to push that forward? Do you think sure. specifically, do you think they yeah. need to put money in yeah. and where do they put the money in? How do they make it happen? Sure. Two things. One is uh, we've got to go back and invest in R&D. The research and development dollars that our government is spending right now on renewables is Tiny. I mean, it's unbelievably small proportion of our, of our overall R&D. This is no, we're not doing a moonshot here. I mean, we're doing a, like a, a, not even a basketball shot on, on renewables. So that's got to change, and the president-elect has a plan for that. But the other thing is this. Let's not forget, a lot of what we need right now is not new space-age technologies. We have existing technologies like caulk guns that could be deployed to weather, weatherize and retrofit our existing buildings. Forty uh, percent of our greenhouse gas problems, not cars, buildings. Our buildings are leaking so much energy. They're not insulated properly. The, the, the window panes don't fit. They're cracks. The, the doors don't fit. All of that work 
to retrofit all those buildings so that we can begin to save energy and cut carbon emissions, jobs. So everything that's good uh, in the short term, we can do all that stuff. It'll pay for itself in energy cost savings. You can't even say that there's an economic argument against it. But more importantly, you can put low-skilled workers, uh, you can give them hard hats and work boots and, 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 and caulk guns and put literally hundreds of thousands of people to work right now cutting carbon and uh, cutting the unemployment rate. Well, you said guns, so you got the Republicans' interest. So maybe, maybe they're like, oh, guns, guns are above. I'm in. Green jobs, let's do it. Eco-friendly Hummer is engineered to kill its driver. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. General Motors gave reporters a look today at a new earth-sensitive Hummer guaranteed to kill the owner during its first week on the road. Engineers have made the killing process relatively pain-free unless the car's onboard computer discovers that his second car is a Cadillac Escalade. GM spokesman Russ Manville. This new model is the only car that attacks the root of the problem with the latest cutting-edge technology. After the new Hummer has carefully disposed of its owner, it will seek and destroy older Hummer models within a three-state radius. Doyle Redland for The Onion, Radio News. I've always wondered about this, and I, obviously you know a hell of a lot more than, than I do, so you're the perfect guy to ask about this. So we, let's say we do the wind or the solar, et cetera. Is that just for the U.S., uh, or is there a way of uh, exporting that to other countries as well? Well, we, we can definitely uh, export and share the technology. I mean, the great thing about having homegrown energy sources, whether you're talking about advanced geothermal or wind or solar or you know, massive conservation efforts or even some smart uh, uh, biofuels, is that you you grow it at home, and you can export the technologies, but the actual work has to be done here and there. If you look at Asia, um, you know we're almost in this economic competition now with Asia, and it's like, oh, we're mad at the Chinese. I'm not. I mean, they have you know hundreds of millions of people that they're trying to get out of poverty. God bless India and China. Here's what I don't want, though. I don't want somebody in Asia, somebody in China, to have to leave her village, leave her community, crowd herself into a, a polluted megacity to make crap for us at Walmart as our only path out of poverty. They should be able to have local green economies powered by clean energy that they're home growing there, and we should have the same thing here, and we should be partners in helping us do that better and better. That's a world that's survivable, uh, and, and I think we should be aiming for that. This is a, the green economy is a global solution, not just for the planet, but also for peace. So it's not that we can take the, the wind or the solar energy that we create here and bring it to Shanghai, right. but we can export the technology and right. our companies and the know that... 
and the companies that we create can certainly profit from bringing that to China and other places. Exactly, and and I think what we want to do is be the world leader in solutions, not pollution, and actually help help Latin America, Africa, and Asia boot up clean so they don't do it the dumb, dirty way that we did, pollute first, ask questions later. We now, with the questions asked, we know the answer is a cooked planet. We, we, We need to avoid that for all of our children. Now, a plan to make a real city out of an edge city. That's what we used to call places that cropped up in the outer suburbs, places to shop or work, but not to live. To get there, you drive. And a couple of weeks ago, I drove out to one such place that's slated for an extreme makeover when it gets a real alternative to driving. The Washington, D.C. metro rail system is coming to Tyson's Corner in northern Virginia. It's been most studied of any of these edge cities. I drove there with Chris Leinberger. He's a developer turned academic and urbanist. He's now at the Brookings Institution. This is your classic drivable suburban place that is anchored by a regional mall. So it's just like Perimeter Center in Atlanta, King of Prussia Mall outside of Philadelphia, um, Schaumburg to the west of Chicago, Newport Beach and the Costa Mesa Mall south of Los Angeles. and. This is, however, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, concentration of retail, office, and hotels in the suburbs in the country. There's a plan to change Tyson's, and it could be a model for change at those other drivable suburban places. Tyson's was started in the 1960s on farmland. It's a city for cars, two huge shopping malls, tens of thousands of shoppers a day, 167,000 parking spaces. The streets are broad, and at the intersections, what should be right angles at the corners are cut with curved turning lanes so drivers don't have to slow down. It was built 13 miles from Washington, near two interstate highways, halfway to Dulles International Airport. It was the far edge of the D.C. metropolitan area. Edge Cities, unfortunately, was a name that was picked up but very quickly lost its relevance because this is no longer on the edge. The edge pushed out another 30 miles. And so Tyson's Corner is now what's referred to in real estate as infill, uh, even though it's only been up for 30, 40 years. And in common parlance, it's referred to as a monstrosity. Exhibit A, I was driving us to an appointment at the Tower Club. You can get in right here. Oh, oh, I gotta get it. No, 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 no. Yeah, you want to go in there. You're now now going to Tyson's Mall. I missed the turn off of Route 7 and made the next turn, it was all of 20 yards farther down the road, into the first Tyson's Mall. Can I get out or do I have to? (laughs) You're going to have to make a U-turn and go back out. We're looking straight ahead at the building I'm trying to get to. And you can't get there from here. I can't get there from here. And you can't walk there. We were 250 yards away as the crow flies, but Tyson's Corner wasn't built for crows any more than it was built for people. So I made a U-turn in the parking lot, a right onto Route 7, and another U-turn. We've followed the advice of traffic engineers. You're in traffic engineer hell right now. Uh And to get out of it, I made a left at the next light into a residential subdivision, a loop through the subdivision, and then another U-turn. Now it doesn't let you go back. Well, but what if I, if I make a right turn here? I think we can uh, <laughs> logically at least I should be able to get back. I didn't, I didn't do this on purpose, Chris. I, 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 I swear. 
And about a quarter of an hour later, I turned right at our destination onto Tower Crescent Road. So there's no signs to say where do you park? Yeah, where do I park? I'll spare you that adventure. Chris Leinberger says this unwalkable, car-dominated city is the product of policies and subsidies that favored drivable suburban development. We wanted it. I mean, this is something that we the people wanted very badly. What we didn't know is that as you built more of it, you decrease the quality of life. So here's the challenge to Fairfax County, Virginia, the most populous county in the state. Tyson's is a huge source of its revenue. But in today's market, people want walkable, bikeable, livable urban environments. That'll be possible here when four rail stations are built as the metro finally makes its way out to Dulles Airport. So the county is planning an urban future for Tysons over the next 30 years. We're looking in sort of what we call the core of Tysons. Uh, in the glass, Tower Club at Tysons, 17 stories above ground on a wraparound balcony, Bill Likos pointed out the vista of sprawl below. It's a range of telecom, uh, government contracting, professional services, banking, and you've got the retail landscape. Likos runs the Fairfax Chamber of Commerce. Tysons is home to plenty of commerce. What it isn't home to is plenty of people. Tyson's is a place that was designed for cars, not people. About 17,000 people live here, and about 117,000, give or take, come to work here every day. So that incredible imbalance is why you have the absolute commuter nightmare of trying to get 117,000 people in you know, in one period of time in the morning and out again at 5 o'clock. So a central part of the plan is to build residential housing, plan for a population of 100,000. That means more than just building apartment houses, Tyson's is utterly inhospitable to pedestrians. Clark Tyler chairs the Tyson's Corner Land Use Task Force, and he took us for a rare experience in a city you would call it a walk. Now, we are approaching... Route 123 mm -hmm. at the entrance to Tyson's Corner Shopping Center. You will note that there are nine lanes of traffic right. as you approach that, and you'll see the little yellow box there with the red light in it, which says you've got 40 seconds to cross nine lanes of traffic. <laughs> now we have come to the end of the sidewalk. Another hyphenated section of high sidewalk. We have to explain this. We just walk down the block on a sidewalk, right. and it ends. If we were to attempt to get to the opposite corner of this intersection, the diagonally opposite corner, right. I don't know how we would do it. No, I mean, well, you'd have to uh, leap over the median and cross four lanes, five lanes of traffic right. to get anywhere close to the crosswalk. So what will the new Tysons be like? It will have sidewalks that are not hyphenated. It will have a grid of streets, shorter blocks. It will have a circulation system. The other thing that would be radical is uh, what they call LEED certified or green buildings that are energy efficient and all the rest, because that's what we've recommended. Buses to get you from the rail stations to the stores. Sounds like science fiction. Sounds like a city. Developers are coming around to love the idea of green, dense, walkable neighborhoods. After all, the value of the land will go up. But some of Tyson's neighbors are incredulous. I'm so used to Tyson's being what it is now that, that it's, an, it's a new idea that we've got to get our minds wrapped around. And it's, it's a little difficult, but you've got to think far enough ahead in, in the future, I guess, to believe it. Mayor Jane Seaman of the neighboring town of Vienna has some concerns about the Tyson's plan. Will it increase her town's traffic, which is already congested? Will Vienna's schools and parks become overcrowded? It's the impact it's going to have on our, on our quality of life yeah. in Vienna. Now, Tyson's is a huge revenue earner for the county, so you benefit from Tyson's growth. Right, already. right, I mean, you do. right, we do. Yes. And, and, you know, there's there's all sorts of infrastructure problems that, that have not been addressed. We just want to make sure that we have a voice in the continuing uh, development. The 30-year plan for Tyson's isn't like a plan to restore an old place. You can't peel away the clumsy construction of the 1970s and then work with the remains of a charming older city somewhere beneath. This place went from zero to 60, like a fast car. And if you say, show me, show me a livable, walkable place that's been made from some oversized office park a dozen miles from a big city, well, as Chris Leinberger told our hosts from Fairfax County up on the wraparound balcony, there isn't any, at least not yet. You are on the cutting edge. 
because of the significance of Tyson's Corner, this is going to be the model of how we transform King of Prussia, Perimeter Center, Costa Mesa, down in, down in Orange County, California. All of these places are going to be transforming just as you are, but you're going first, which means you get to pay the dumb tax. <laughs> they get to make mistakes that we haven't even thought of. In 30 years, we'll know if they got it right. There's a battle ahead Many battles are lost But you never reach the end of the road While you're traveling with me Is there a possible downside here where people say, well, look, you now have a black president, so racism is over. Let's just get beyond it, and let's not talk about it anymore, and let's not address it anymore. Yeah, well, we're, we're already seeing a lot of that. And, um, you know, the, the good thing is that we now have an awake public. Before, you know, everybody was, you know, kind of in a stupor during the 90s or just sort of like, you know, in therapy during the, the early part of this decade, uh, trying to deal with what's going on with Bush. The past year, you have, we're going to have an engagement dividend as a result of so many people getting involved for the first time. And I trust that we can continue to have an intelligent conversation going forward. People were for the war, now they're against the war. People were for corn-based ethanol, and now people are saying, no, that's you know, burning, and a world full of hungry people burning food as fuel is probably stupid. You're beginning to see that you know, the, 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 the cycle of learning goes on. So I think people are happy to be relieved for a moment of some of the, the most crushing burdens of race, but I think people are also gonna look at the country and we're gonna be able to move forward. One concrete proposal that we've got to bring people together in a real way is this idea of a clean energy core. The idea that you've got to retrofit millions of buildings. Uh, that work can pay for itself. According to McKinsey, if you retrofit a building, blowing in insulation, replacing the glass, it will pay for itself in energy cost savings in two to four years. So it can actually be done revenue neutral if you fund it right, if you finance it right. We're saying let Barack Obama come out and say he's going to have a clean energy core, just like FDR had the Civilian Conservation Corps, and put 600,000 young people to work, retrofitting and weatherizing buildings, you know, working with labor unions, et cetera, so that we can begin to rebuild labor, we can pull people together across lines, but start with the poorest communities. Green the ghetto first. That's, our, that's our, our main point, so that the people whose homes are the leakiest with regard to energy and have the least ability to pay will actually get help seeing people in their neighborhoods, hopefully their kids with green hard hats on, tightening up those buildings, maybe throwing on a solar panel or two, and in that regard, we can start making the rhetoric real. If we're going to be one country and we're going to get beyond race, well, then we should start. These disparities now need to start shrinking. Uh, and that's, I think, the next challenge. And you've got uh, Salazar at Interior. How do you feel about those appointments? Well, you know, this is what I think. I think that uh, the president-elect is, is making a set of appointments at this point, trying to calculate where is the center. He wants to govern from the center. Uh, the president's job, he's a tightrope rope walker. He's got to stay on that tightrope. That's his job. I'm not mad at him. Our job is to move the tightrope, right? And uh, that's what this show is about. That's what all of our work is about. And I think that talking about a green future that's inclusive uh, and it, where everybody can have some work, wealth, and, and better health is one way to begin to move the tightrope further in our direction. All right. And finally, uh, we, what we always do on Meet the Bloggers is talk about what the viewers can do. Yes. So what can the viewers do to make change in this uh, green-collar economy and push it forward and move sure. that tightrope? That's great. Well, well, we have two proposals. One is the Green Jobs Act of 2007. We're trying to make sure that it gets funded in the stimulus package. They're going to put out you know, half a trillion dollars. Let's make sure that people are being, uh, that community colleges uh, have the, the money they need to train folks to do this work, number one. So you can go to our website, greenforall.org. That's green for all, no numerals, all letters, .org. Um, and help us get that Green Jobs Act funded in the stimulus package. And we're also pushing the Clean Energy Corps, which, can be, which will be a $33 billion revolving loan fund to retrofit America and put 600,000 people to work.
So, Bobby, the first news of the day, it just is one of those stories that keeps coming back day after day. Global warming is irreversible, new studies show. That is a scary as hell story. Give me your angle on it. I mean, what's, well, what's happening? Yeah, this is kind of a frightening study by Susan Solomon. It was published at the National Academy of Sciences. She's from NOAA. And what she says essentially is that, you know, we regard most environmental problems as things that if we do focus on them, we can solve them. We, If there's an ozone problem, we get rid of the ozone and that the environment bounces back. But in this case, you know, Mike, the first molecule of carbon monoxide from an automobile is still in the atmosphere today from the, the original Model T, and we're still breathing it. So this stuff takes a long, long time to disappear from the atmosphere. And what this new study shows is that even if we're able to restrict the amount of, if we're to able to limit the amount of carbon dioxide emissions into our atmosphere, that the environmental changes are going to continue to proceed for a thousand years. We'll see sea level rising and all of these other changes. But tell me about the, the Dust Bowl conditions that she talks about in the in the U.S. Southwest and the Mediterranean. Well, talks about what, Dust Bowls developing. Right. What um I mean, all of the models show that you're going to get more rainfall in certain parts of the country, mainly the coastal areas of the countries of various continents, because. There's going to be more evaporation out at sea, but that the interior parts of the countries are going to dry up. And this is what happened during the Dust Bowl in the 1920s and 1930s, where you had a lot of the Great Plains just dry up and turn to dust. And where, where do you? And I mean, if you, if you, you know, we get drove, people and we, they drove mass migrations of Oklahomans and other people to California. This was one of the biggest migration in the history of the United States, and the same thing is going to happen now, but we're going to see it on a permanent basis. You know, the email we get from time to time is they say, as this develops, where is the place that people will migrate to be the safest in all this? Well, I think a lot of people, I, you know, I think Canada is in pretty good shape because Canada has one-fifth of the fresh water in the world. Siberia also has a tremendous amount of fresh water, but that's not a place that people feel particularly safe going. Canada is an area, and particularly, and, and then on the coastal areas, as long as you're about 15 or 20 feet above sea level, those are pretty good places to be. But um, I mean, people I don't are already, I mean, people are already be, writing books and you know planning the, this this whole idea about what 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 do they do now? Because they have finally, you know, maybe somebody is getting it that this is irreversible. This is certainly a very very credible study, isn't it? You know, I remember when, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. When my father, the U.S. Marshals came to our house, as they did to many people, the homes of many people who were in government, had high-level government positions, and they said, we want to take you to these um, these caverns down in, in the western part of Virginia where the whole government was going to be moved in case there was a nuclear exchange. And my father said, no, we're not going to move. And he said to us, we, I want you to go into Our Lady of Victory School where we are going there because if you don't show up at school, people are going to panic. And if there is a nuclear exchange, we're going to be right here at Hickory Hill. Um, mm. My uncle, John Kennedy, had said that the, the the living will envy the dead. To me, it's not a productive thing to be saying right now. Where are we going to go and and adopt this kind of survival? Well, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not. I'm not saying it, but I'm telling you. I know a whole, you're you're we're, through we're, we're because getting... I think you're one foot above sea level down there in Pensacola. <laughs> Your building already is falling into the water. <laughs> okay, look. Let me ask you this: You had check. You have, but but you have the Czech president say that Al Gore is a boob and that global warming is a big hoax, and he's afraid that the current crisis uh, is going to be misused to radically constrain the function of the free market. That's coming from. From this guy, the Czech president, yeah, Vaclav Klaus. Yeah, do you know? Um, do you should, know? Have you met uh, Vaclav? You should check with his cousin Santa Klaus about <laughs> what's happening at the North Pole right now. <laughs> Santa might say, "Vaclav, <laughs> you're an idiot." So anyway, but well, this guy is a certified idiot, and he, you know, he's been around for years. He's the James Imhoff of Europe, the Rush Limbaugh of Europe. Hmm. He's a global warming denier. This is part of his shtick, and he, uh, and unfortunately, it's his turn to be the commander in chief of the rotating presidency of the European Union. So people kind of have to at least listen to his dribble. But you know, everybody regards him as a nut.
And I say her uncle was a crooked French Canadian And he was gut shot running gin And how his guts were all suspended in his fingers And how he held them, how he held them, held them in And the water rose down the drain The water rose down the drain This is the story of the road that goes to my house And what goes there do remain Our opponents will have a simple message. A climate bill will hurt the economy. They're dead wrong. There's a basic statistic here that everyone should know. For every million dollars invested in clean energy industries like wind, solar, and energy efficiency, 17 jobs are created. And for every million invested in coal and oil, only five and a half jobs are created. We won't see sufficient measures to combat climate change without every one of us pushing and pushing and pushing some more. If power plants, landfills, waste facilities, sewage plants, mountaintop removal, oil refineries were located near more affluent people just as quickly as they were near poor ones, we would have had a clean and green economy a long, long time ago. If anyone thinks that the job was done when we elected a new president, as great a change as this is in our land, they need to think again when it comes to climate change. Because don't forget, this president was the man who, in accepting his party's nomination, touted the virtues of clean coal. If all you do is have a clean energy revolution, you won't have done anything. I'm going to tell you why. If all we do is take out the dirty power system, the dirty power generation in a system and just replace it with some clean stuff, put a solar panel on top of this system, but we don't deal with how we are consuming water, we don't deal with how we're treating our other sister and brother species, we don't deal with toxins, we don't deal with uh, uh, the way we treat each other. If that's not a part of this movement, let me tell you what you'll have. This is all you'll have. You'll have solar-powered bulldozers, solar-powered buzzsaws, and biofuel bombers, and we'll be fighting wars over lithium for the batteries instead of oil for the engines, and we'll still have a dead planet. Green jobs are, are not this panacea for everything that ails society, but if folks, and if folks put that kind of pressure on them, when one little thing goes wrong, one little thing goes wrong. It's not like we're going to get receive the kind of support that the automakers did. With your help here, what we will do is we'll transform not only the United States of America, but the third world of our entire of our entire globe into understanding that we together will save our planet. We're not just talking here about what we want. We're talking about what You will build a green economy strong enough to lift people out of poverty. You will connect the people who most need work to the work that most needs to be done. You will beat pollution and poverty at the same time. You will beat this recession and global warming at the same time. We must move forward with this agenda because it is important for national security. It's important for us to tackle the reality of global warming. But it also is important for us because we can create a new green energy economy that will benefit all of you and all of us and all of this world together. There are some who would say that in these difficult challenges that we face across America and across our globe, that our best days have come and gone. 
But there are those who look at this moment of crisis as a moment of opportunity for all of us to change the world in a lasting way. It was in the dire straits of the Great Depression and the rise of international fascism that we got Great New Deal, Social Security, and a whole bunch of other stuff that many of us, that our prior generations benefited from, that we also benefited from as well. So please remember, guys, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And I'm even more excited about what you guys are going to be doing in the future because you know what? You guys are the ambassadors of our future, and this is this is the green thing that we've all been waiting for. You gathered here with Power Shift Online as young people from the ages of 18 to 30. You are the engines of change. You are the engines of change. We talk about the greatest generation, about your great aunts and uncles who rose to service when country needed them. But if you think about it, the folks we know as our greatest generation were your age when they answered the call. But you were born for a reason. Please think about it. There is not one social movement in this country that was not positively impacted by young people. Your generation has not only power, but it has expertise. You are savvy, not only about public policy, but also about politics and how it impacts policy priorities. If you think about it, your generation just elected a president. You will achieve something that no generation of Americans has ever achieved. You will be the generation that we look back on and say, they did not give us the coalition we always wanted. They gave us the country we always wanted, and they saved the earth. Don't back down, young people. We need you. Thank you very much. reported this week that Kyoto Protocol signatories have reduced greenhouse gas emissions to 5 percent below 1990 levels, four years ahead of the treaty schedule. Is it really possible for a country to measure how much carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, perfluorocarbon, sulfur hexafluoride, and other greenhouse gases it's putting out? According to Brian Palmer, not exactly. For a country to get a direct readout of its national emissions, it would have to put a greenhouse gas meter on every tailpipe, landfill, and cow. Since that's impractical, to say the least, government officials track the inputs rather than the outputs. In other words, they count up the number of gallons of fossil fuels consumed, cattle raised, and pounds of waste produced. From there, it's just a matter of doing the right calculations. Carbon dioxide is the easiest gas to measure in this way. When a unit of fossil fuel is combusted, it emits a predictable amount of carbon dioxide. While different combustion devices may produce differing levels of certain pollutants, such as sulfur dioxide or particulate matter, the poundage of carbon dioxide emitted depends in large part on the composition of the fuel. For example, combusting one gallon of gasoline reliably produces about 19 pounds of carbon dioxide. One ton of coal can be counted on to give off approximately 5,700 pounds. A cubic foot of natural gas produces 0.12 pounds of carbon dioxide. That means you can tally the amount of each type of fuel consumed in a year via surveys of energy importers, producers, and suppliers, then multiply the totals separately. Computing methane emissions is more complicated because the ratio of inputs to outputs can change from one situation to the next. 
In the United States, about 24% of human-caused methane emissions comes from the decomposition of organic matter in landfills. But the amount that comes out of any one landfill depends on what kind of garbage the landfill contains and at what temperature. A further 21% of our emissions are spewed out by livestock. But a cow will be more or less gassy depending on the details of its diet and the bacteria in its gut. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recommends a method for calculating methane emissions from livestock. The mathematical model looks at a national livestock population's average age, weight, diet, and other factors to generate an emission factor, representing the average methane emission per head of cattle per day for that population. The emission factor can then be multiplied by the number of cattle, which is calculated via government surveys of ranchers and dairy farmers. There is a similar model for methane emissions from landfills, incorporating the weight of municipal waste, the fraction of waste deposited in landfills, the age of the waste, and climatic conditions. Nitrous oxide estimates are even less reliable. The gas is released when microbes in the soil metabolize nitrogen-rich fertilizer, but the details of this reaction are very difficult to model due to variations in the native microflora and oxygen availability. The best we can do is use temperature data, soil conditions, fertilizer type, and crop type to make an imprecise guess about the overall rate of emission. The difficulties in measuring certain gases means there's likely to be some degree of error in the calculations. That problem is mitigated by the relative ease with which we can estimate carbon dioxide emissions. While methane, nitrous oxide, and other gases are more potent climate change agents, carbon dioxide remains the largest contributor to the problem by a sizable margin. Thanks for listening, everybody. Boy, it has been a long time since we've had a chance to talk. My apologies for that, but uh, I promise there were extenuating circumstances galore that uh, that pulled me away from the show. Uh, first and foremost, power shift. I told you a little bit about it uh, before it happened. Encourage you to go if you had the chance, and it was nuts. Um, and you actually heard some clips from it today in uh, today's show. Those uh, were put together by. A uh, new friend of mine who I just met at PowerShift, very talented uh, audio engineer who was there um, just volunteering specifically to do audio stuff. And he put those clips together, and I thought they were fantastic. They, they were clips from the speaker series uh, of from the, the weekend of PowerShift, Friday night and Saturday night. There were big kind of blowout events with... Uh, you know, 10,000 people in attendance uh, or more. I think the second night there may have been 12,000 people in attendance. And uh, and so those were clips from the speakers who uh, were at those events. So that was very excellent. But um, but boy, that, that whole conference was nuts. And uh, just to give you a sense of it, I ended up working 60 hours in four days. And those days were Friday through Monday. So talk about getting your weekend um, totally stolen away, and uh, and you know, down went uh, down went the podcast. It just it wasn't going to happen. Uh, what with PowerShift looming or with it uh, with it right on top of me. So here we are a week later, um, getting back into it. So just a few things to talk about from the show. Five 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 is what it's all about. That's exactly what we need to keep this show going. It is how we. Fund the show, run the show, and promote the show. Every single person out there listening can do one of these things. Donate five bucks to help keep the show going, pay for the show, pay for our time that it takes to do all this work. If you have the technical ability, send in five clips for the show. You know that this show's made up entirely of stuff that we steal from other people who actually know what they're doing. You know, if you're out there listening to this stuff, send in five clips and we will be stocked and ready to go to, to keep this show going strong. And finally, anyone else, tell five friends. That's all we're asking. Uh, just help promote the show in any way you can. And, you know, and frankly, the, whole, the telling five friends 
sending us a review in the iTunes Music Store or voting for us in Podcast Alley totally qualifies in, for that. It's you know that stuff is incredibly important to get us promoted on these websites. Podcast Alley, by the way, um, we did pretty well last last month. That was kind of an experimental month. It uh, it was also a funky month. Didn't have as many shows as as we like to put out, and didn't have the opportunity to talk about Podcast Alley. So I think I only mentioned it a couple of times, and we ranked like thirteenth. So pretty good, absolutely. And uh, and but top ten is where you need to be to get on the homepage. So I I say we do that this month. Um, so everyone who voted last month, go ahead and do it again. And if you didn't vote last month, go ahead and vote, and we're in. No problem. Now here is a special request for any of you out there with video skills, video editing, anything like that. We're trying to put together a video advertisement, basically, you know, like a promotional video for the show, um, about a minute and a half long. We already have the audio, and it's it's been played on the show before. Uh, this this great promo that was made by um, by a great supporter of the show, Chris Priest. And, uh, and we just want to turn that minute and 30 seconds of audio and, and create a little video out of it. So if you have, you know, video editing skills and you want to help support the show, that would be a fantastic way to do it. We've got this great opportunity to, to actually uh, advertise the show at bargain basement prices. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in doing that. And, uh, and frankly, I'm just, uh, I'm losing my artistic edge here and and uh, you know i'm just looking for some help uh, on the creative side figuring out what a video like that could look like uh, how it could be put together and um and that's just one of the hundreds of things I, I feel like i don't have time to do and i keep putting it off and putting it off so if you can help send me an email j at bestofleft.com and uh and let me know i, I would be extremely grateful to uh, be able to collaborate with people on that Finally, 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 last thing on the show, well, just a quick personal note, uh, tragically, like seriously, tragically, uh, this, this last uh, week, the very end of this last week, my uh, organization that I work for, in the, for the very first time, it's in its uh, about seven year existence, finally had to lay someone off for financial reasons for the first time. You know, we, organizations, similar to us who we know well uh, all across our area have been doing this already and we finally joined their ranks and it's really awful like just you know it, it finally brought it close to home and you know obviously many 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 of you uh have been affected in, in a very similar way either personally or or very nearly personally um by you know friends and family being laid off from their jobs. So, you know, that's this is really uh, lighting the fire under me to kick into gear <laughs> the idea of trying to make just a little bit of supplementary income with this podcast and, and all the work that goes into it. And so finally, I'm going to really try to get on the ball to get a little bit of very reasonable and appropriate advertising in the show. And so what what I'm asking to you is if you have any, uh, well, first of all, if you would like to advertise on the show, please contact me, jay at bestofleft.com and uh, tell me about your product. But seriously, like, I'm totally sensitive to who you guys are. I know this audience is not putting up for a bunch of BS ads about, I don't know, well, I mean, to be ridiculous, like Hummers or anything like that. Like, the ads going to the show will be very appropriate to the audience uh, you have my word to do my absolute best to do that. And the minute any ads show up in this show that uh, are, you know, offensive to our uh, sense of liberal ideas, let me know. Of course, we don't have to worry about that now because we don't have any advertisers yet, which is where you guys might come in. If you have any thoughts on anyone who would like to advertise on this show or any uh, businesses who you think would be a good fit, please let me know. And if you, like, maybe I'm stretching now. If you have, like, advertising experience, you know about this stuff, I'm open to some advice. I'm always looking to learn. And uh, I'm 
basically flying blind and trying to figure out how this whole thing might work uh, without any help at the moment. So, it, again, just another way, if you are interested in helping the show and uh, that particular skill set uh, fits into what you do, drop me a line and I'd be happy to, to chat with anyone about this to you know, make it uh, successful and painless for all involved. So again, you know, as mentioned a few shows ago, this is not about getting rich. This is about getting by. And um, I love this show more than anything else I'm involved with. It is, you know, an absolute passion of mine. And it takes up a lot of time. And especially in this economic situation, um, it would be fantastic if it could help just pay some of the bills. So that's the position we're in. Um, you guys are great. The support I get from you always blows me away, and um, and I look forward to keeping the show going strong for a long time to come. So that's going to be it for today, coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Five now, black and white, you took a part in picture that wasn't right. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fall